dedicated her life to you and, and, and God seeking you out, I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself in a very real and a very personal way. And so, Lord, just do a work in her spiritual heart, do a work in her physical heart as well. And lastly, I lift up Josie to you and once again, just pray, Father, that you would meet her at where she is at. As Linda said, she's not doing well. She's frail to begin with. And just pray, Father, that you would strengthen her. Pray, Father, most of all, though, that you would reveal yourself to her, God, and you would be her peace and that you would be her comfort. And so again, God, we just thank you that we have this opportunity and even responsibility to pray for those who have sought you out through our church and pray, God, that we would for always be found faithful, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 16. Tonight we are going to look at an event on the day it happened. It was an absolute first, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's an event that will be replicated many, many, many times over throughout the course of history. Each and every one of us will experience the resurrection we will be brought back to life. As a matter of fact, the moment that we pass away, oh, here's the bulletin guy now. Um, <laughs> the moment we pass away, we close our eyes here on earth. We're resurrected into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, this, because the Lord was resurrected, we see the proof of it, and we understand and we know, it's important to understand and know this, and it'll be one of my points a little bit later on, everybody will be resurrected. Some to eternal life, some to eternal darkness. The choice is ours where we spend eternity. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this chapter, looking at the resurrection, we'll be dividing it up into four parts. In the first part, we'll see the reality of the resurrection, verses 1 through 8. Secondly, in verses 9 through 14, we'll see the truth of the resurrection. Thirdly, in verses 15 through 18, the results of the resurrection and verses 19 through 20, the continued resurrection. Now, before we start, and we'll be referring back here even a couple of times, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. The Apostle Paul there in his letter to the church at Corinth, well, there was a heresy that was going on that said that there was no resurrection. And so Paul is addressing it, and in his addressing of it, we see the importance of it as well. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now keep in mind that there was this, remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees, two sects of Judaism? The Pharisees believed that we would be resurrected and spend eternity. I say we, the Jews, would spend eternity with God. But the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And really, more than likely, what is happening is, is these beliefs are filtering into the church, especially we see priests get saved, and it's very possible that some of them who had gotten saved were uh, Sadducees, and their doctrine of no resurrection entered into their or at least their perspective of the, the, the gospel. So again, in verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and so Paul is taking this through logically, then if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. And then he's thinking this through. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Then, you know, what, what, what are we preaching here? And it says, and also your faith is empty. 
What are you having faith in? You're having faith in a dead Savior? Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Well, that would make sense. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Because remember, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was the proof that he overcame death and in turn, he overcame sin. And so that was a reality. But if he's not resurrected, then we have no proof, and he's just like anybody else that has died and stayed dead. Verse 18, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're the most pitiful of all. Because again, if he couldn't do anything for himself, he's not going to be able to do anything for me. Verse 20, Paul didn't just leave it there, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep fallen asleep as a believer who has died, not that there is a period of soul sleep, so to speak, but the idea is the body is still here, looks like it's sleeping, and one day it's going to be resurrected with the soul. But anyway, Christ is the first fruits. Keep it in mind, that term, the first fruits are the first, Jesus is the first, but the first of many more to follow, of which we are a part of that, and that's why we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, first of all, we see back in the Gospel of Mark, we see the reality of the resurrection. Verse 1, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, this is the first Easter Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? That stone would be very heavy, and these women more than likely, obviously, they believe they couldn't handle that. We had seen this group of women earlier in chapter 15, verse 40. It says, And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joses and Salome, and also down in verse 47, we see them mentioned as well. James the less, who's James the less? This would be James really the less known. There were John and James, the apostles, and they seem to be in the inner circle. This James is not that James. This is James the son of Alphaeus. He was another James who was an apostle as well. This would be his mother. So James really the less known is the idea. So these women who were the last at the crucifixion are also the first who are at the resurrection, or at least to see the the proofs and the truth of the resurrection. And, well, Peter, I believe, chose to include this just simply because, well, we're not even shown what they have to say for the most part here, but the idea is they're coming to worship the Lord through the anointing of his body and they're doing it first, and they're making it a priority. They, they couldn't, during the Passover, partake in the body. They, they had to wait these three days, and so this is the first opportunity that they have to anoint the body with the spices. <clears throat> now, it was common in the Jewish culture when somebody would die, especially somebody who was, um, uh, well, who was a Jew, that they would put him in the tomb, and this tomb would be a a period of time that their flesh would be eaten and it would be 
dissolved all the way until there was just bones that were there. Then they would take the bones and they would either put them in a private bone box or they would put it in the private. That's why a lot of times we're told that the kings of Israel rested with their fathers. The idea is is that their bones were placed with the bones of the fathers. But you can imagine during the time in the tomb, there's a decomposing body, wouldn't be very pleasant. So you would anoint it with spices and it would help mask the smell. And so these women are dedicated to Christ. They're seeking the Lord out early in the morning, right at dawn. There's just something spiritual. There's something ordained by God for seeking the Lord out in the morning. Now, I do my devotions first thing in the morning. It's one of the first things I do when I get up. I try to make it a priority in my day because I know myself. I know how busy I can get. I know how distracted I can get. And it's quiet in the house. Well, it's quiet in our house all the time because it's just my wife and myself anymore. And it's really, really nice, especially if you still have kids in the house. One day, that day will come for you as well. But it's just the perfect time to, to seek out the Lord and, and to make the Lord the priority of your life. We're, we're, we're told in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17, this is the King James Version, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. In Psalm 63, verse 1, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, thou art my God, early I will seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. This is just simply getting up early and seeking out the Lord before you're exposed to the world and the things of the world. Well, these women, if you will, and this is probably the main point here, they made Christ a priority first thing in the morning. Now, in their minds, the body would have always been there. We can do this anointing at any time. But because of their dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ, they wanted to perform at least what they thought in their minds would be this last act for him. These were women who ministered to the needs of the Lord while he walked this earth. Verses 4 and 6. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, and from other gospels, we know this to be an angel, a young man clothed in long white robes, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. Notice why the stone was rolled away. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that man could peer in, so that we could go in and we would see and that we would know that the tomb was empty. Now, later on this day, the Lord is going to appear to the apostles, and he is just, because he has this spiritual body, It's as if he just walks through the wall or walks through the door, just appears in this room. So if there's a stone in the way, it's not a big deal to him. He just walks through it. And so the idea, again, is the stone is there for our benefit. Because what is man constantly doing today? You hear it all the time. We found the body of Jesus Christ, or we found the bones of Jesus Christ, or whatever it is. Again, this just is constantly happening throughout, well, for the last 2,000 years. Well, you can find the bones of Muhammad, you can find the bones of Confucius, you can find the bones of Buddha, and you can find the bones of Elvis, but you cannot find the bones of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is risen and he is not there. And as 
man can search with all of his heart, and that is something that he is never, ever going to find. So the importance of the resurrection, why is the resurrection the cornerstone of our faith? Once again, just to set this and the importance of the resurrection. Now, there's the importance of the death of Christ upon the cross. There's no doubt about it. And one's not any more important than the other. You can't rate these things. But keep it in mind, it was the cross where my sins were dealt with. And so we see the importance of that. But then there is the resurrection. Well, the resurrection just speaks volumes. The first thing it does is it speaks of he who was upon the cross. It proves that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment I have received from my Father. And again, the Son would have the nature and the essence of the Father. He would holiness, godliness, and wholeness in the Father. Secondly, the resurrection, it verifies the truth of the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because if the resurrection is not true, well, we saw the things that Paul said, but if the resurrection is not true, then the whole Bible starts to tumble like a stack of dominoes. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol or, or Hades, that would be the dwelling place of the dead. And really what he's meaning here is, is in death. You shall not leave my soul in death, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up, and they will be exceedingly sorrowful. So again, if there's no resurrection, then both of those verses are not true. And the Old Testament falls apart, and the New Testament falls apart. And so there must be a resurrection of the Messiah. Thirdly, the crucifixion assures us that the resurrection is possible and we will be resurrected as well. That's a pretty big thing, the resurrection, to be raised from the dead. Again, the Sadducees just didn't believe that that was even a possible thing. And in our way of thinking, apart from this Holy Spirit, apart from the knowledge of the Word of God, that's a pretty big pill to swallow as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, I read it earlier, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So in Adam, we all have the sinful nature of Adam, but in Jesus Christ, we have this glorious future, that great hope that is within us, that we will be resurrected to the place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. And so, yes, the resurrection is possible, and matter of fact, we will all be resurrected. That's what Christianity is all about, because there is no resurrection. Why live a holy life? What difference does it make if we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? This is the cornerstone and really what a relationship with God is built upon. Fourthly, the resurrection is a proof of a future judgment. If we just die, then there is and go away. If we just cease to exist, then yeah, there's not going to be any future judgment. 
in Acts 17.31, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. So this speaks of humanity being resurrected and judged by he who was resurrected. He has given uh, assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. And so the believer will be judged, but we will be judged according to our works. Not judged for the point or for the purpose of condemnation, but for those crowns. Again, an athlete that competed, we'll use the example of a 100-meter run, that athlete would run, well, when he ran, did he start off correctly? Did he get a 10-meter head start? Or did he hold the other guy's back? No, did he run correctly? Did he finish correctly? Did he run the whole race? And so the winner would be presented to a committee, and they would sit at this judgment seat. It was called the behemoth seat. And they would sit, or the Bema seat, they would sit there and they would judge this man. Okay, yeah, he ran according to how he was supposed to, according to the rules, and he would receive the crown. And so we are going to be judged for a job well done, a ministry well done for the things that Christ has called us. There's not going to be any shame in this judgment. Some of us will have multiple crowns. Some of us will just probably get a couple of leafs. But either way, it's all going to be done. There's no sorrow. There's no tears in heaven. But there are going to be those in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, that they will be judged to condemnation. All of this because Christ has risen and we will rise as well. When I say we, I'm speaking of all of humanity, those who are born again and those who aren't. Some to eternal life, some to eternal darkness. The resurrection is how that we know that he is there for us. You're gone to prepare a place for me, but if there is no resurrection, that means absolutely nothing. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Well, if there is no resurrection, then that means absolutely nothing. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so when I'm in need of prayer, when I'm going through difficult days, when I'm in sin, God, or Christ, represents me to the Father that this is mine. He's interceding for me. And I have to understand the value of a Savior who lives for my protection, for my purposes, and for my benefit. And then sixthly, the resurrection is what motivates us in ministry. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is with us even right now. Christ is with us when we fail and flounder, but also as we prosper. As we move forward in obedience to what he's called, we know, again, that our Redeemer lives. And matter of fact, he watches over us, he keeps us, he strengthens us, and he enables us. With no resurrection, with no resurrection, there is no Christianity. If you call yourself a Christian and do not believe in the resurrection, then your God is dead, and in fact, you are not a Christian. A Savior who is not risen is dead. If dead, then he is powerless. If powerless, then he is helpless. And if he is helpless, he's not with you. And even if he would be, he's unable to do anything for you. Then you are on your own concerning eternity, and you have no basis for your hope. 
Your assurance is only some sort of opinion, some sort of band-aid to make yourself feel better during this time. Hope? Well, really, we have kind of two definitions of hope. The biblical hope that speaks of the believer, this is a surety that I have. Again, it's on par with faith, faith trusting in God for today, hope trusting in God for my future. Our great hope is in a resurrected Jesus Christ. But then there's the other definition or viewpoint of hope. Well, I hope I get into heaven. Well, what's my future? Well, I hope it's something good, but that's the absolute best that you're able to do without the knowledge of a resurrected Lord. There's a surety in Christ. And that's the, one of the great themes of the scriptures is that you would have a surety in your salvation, that the devil would not allow you to lose that, that others would not allow, be allowed to confuse you, but your hope would be in the risen Lord, that you would be strengthened and you would be motivated throughout this life. During the dark times and the difficult days, as well as the times when things are going well, that you would be faithful to God's call in your life. Verses 7 and 8. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We should see the importance of this. And Peter. And Peter really speaks volumes because this gospel... It's believed this gospel, although penned by John Mark, is being dictated to him by the apostle Peter. And Peter must have thought back during those times to his feelings of failure and hopelessness, commendation, and all that he experienced and thought he went to tell the disciples and me. Because although Peter would think, although I failed, I I said I was going to stand up for him. I said I would even die for him, but when this little girl even confronted me, I ended up forsaking him. But even though I forsook him, he has not forsaken me. Go and tell the disciples and Peter's and and me. I, I, I was a part of that. Even though I wasn't as strong as I thought I was, even though I wasn't as perfect as I thought I was, he still thought to me. And so Peter understood that he was not forsaken by the Lord, but God still was inclusive of him. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. God has always had a future and a hope for all of us, but here, since he's the example, for the apostle Peter. And even though Peter was going to fail, even though Peter was going to not be able to live up of his opinion of himself, God understood who he was and still had a high opinion of Peter as he does us all. And when he's saying, I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail, and when you have returned, and when you have failed... But when you have returned, he says, then you're going to be of value to me. And your value is going to be strengthening the brethren. Strengthening the brethren as far as his ministry back then, but also his ministry throughout the ages. Because it was the victories of those in the past that add to our faith. But for some, and during some times, I think I cling to the failures of those. Not that I rejoice over their failures, but I can see just as they failed and I have failed, 
God is still gracious. God is still merciful. God was gracious and merciful to Peter, and because he was gracious and merciful to Peter, he'll be gracious and merciful to us. And again, that all lends toward strengthening us and enabling us in ministry. One other thing, and you can classify this under a Christian concept. We've mentioned it before, and we've seen it many places in the Bible. And one of these days, I'm going to go through the Bible, and I'm going to gather all these together, and we'll look at them. But when something, a a Christian concept, a theological point, is of utmost importance in the heart of God, we see the weight that is lent towards that, or at least the revelation of God's heart towards that concept, and we see a presentation of the Trinity. Now, what could be more important than the resurrection? Well, in the, rec- in the resurrection, we see the involvement of the Trinity in it. We see that it was the Father that raised Jesus. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, God an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. But the Bible also tells me that Jesus raised himself. In John chapter 10, verse 18, No one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again, this command I receive from my Father. So he has power to take back his life again. And then thirdly, Jesus was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he whom raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And the idea of what we're being told is this is the plan of the totality of the Godhead, and this is the power of the totality of the Godhead. And again, the whole... The, the, the whole weight of this is pointing towards what God has done with sin. Because again, the resurrection can only come about because of the crucifixion. And again, what ties those two together is God's victory over sin and God's victory over death. That was necessary to have the totality of the Godhead working in unison to see that achieved. Secondly, We see the truth of the resurrection, verses 9 through 14. Now when he had rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. That will be at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen." Again, the Apostle Peter, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to look at the proofs of the resurrection that is there. Peter presented a series of them. Proofs that still exist today. Proofs that we should be able to see in our Christian lives as well. The first proof of the resurrection is the changed life of the believer. To me, that one truly speaks volumes. The changed life of the believer. What happened? What caused the believer's life to be changed? Well, the Bible tells us, and it can only be, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Look around you. Every life that has been miraculously altered, looking at yours first, but also the lives of others. Every life that has been made new through belief is centered upon the resurrected Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Well, does he have subjects? Well, we're his subjects here today. Are you saved? Has there been a change in your life based upon the Holy Spirit and the preaching of his word? Is he resurrected? What else could possibly cause these things to happen? We've been told, and all of these things have followed through in the scriptures. Will we be resurrected? Well, so far, the Bible is batting a thousand. So far, the Bible is truth from cover to cover. And so we can believe and even embrace the promises that we have been given. Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Secondly, when it comes to the proof of the resurrection, we have the scriptural proof, verses 3 through 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So just as the Old Testament said, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul's point, You can check it out. You can look at the Old Testament, not just the New, but you can look at the Old Testament and see that these things are spoken of and see that these things have come to pass, that he was to be crucified and he was to be resurrected. And so what Paul, in essence, is saying, this isn't a new thing. This is as it was to be all along. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, when it says these were the Bereans, when these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Well, what were they searching? Well, what was Paul speaking of? Jesus Christ and him crucified. It says they were searching the scriptures. There was no New Testament at that time. The only scriptures that they had to search were the Old Testament. And so they were going back when it says that the Christ, that these things should happen to the Christ, well, Christ is the Messiah. And so they would go back in the Old Testament. Okay, now is Paul bringing something new? And what they would find is, no, these things were prophesied all along. Third proof of the resurrection is the eyewitness accounts, verses 5 through 7. And he was seen by Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Remember the OJ trial? They were looking at DNA evidence, and uh, there were certain theories that were presented, some that were by the defense that were kind of way out there, and trying to determine, is this man guilty or not? The problem was, there were only three eyewitnesses. Two of them were dead, and one, O.J., wasn't speaking. And so we're looking and examining all of this evidence, trying to figure out what was the truth. But Paul here, he presents a list of witnesses concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first is Peter and the Twelve. Again, I think Peter is listed, even by the Apostle Paul, as an example of the grace of God. 
the 12 or the 11 at this time, they saw him on the very first Easter night. Again, we just saw that in Mark 16, 14. Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Keep in mind, Judas is dead at this point, and even though there's only 11, they're still referred to as the 12, the, the apostles. This is the only thing that can turn the apostles from being cowards and being somebody who seemingly are ineffective to bold preachers of God's word. They were all willing to go to their deaths because they knew that that wasn't the end, but their deaths would be a glorious beginning. Why? They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. In verse 6, it speaks of 500 brethren. Who were these 500 brethren? Well, the fact of the matter is, the Bible doesn't say And some people say it were the people who were around when Jesus issued the Great Commission, that there was a lot of disciples at that time. It could be those who were around when he he ascended into heaven. doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is he appeared to over 500 people. Most of those, Paul is saying, as I write this letter, you can go talk to them. They're still around, although some have fallen asleep. Some, Some have died. James, the James that he is talking about here is not the Apostle James. He wouldn't single him out like this. This is more than likely the Lord's brother, James, the one who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then again in verse 7, and all the apostles. He's not being redundant here, but these apostles, well, there's the office of apostle, that would be the 12, and then there is the adjective apostle. We are all apostles. The literal definition of apostle is ones who are sent with orders. We'll look at that in just a little bit. The Great Commission, those are our orders to go forth and make disciples. We are apostles. We are ones that have been given the order, and we are sent into all the world for the purpose of fulfilling the order that we have given. And then the last proof is the first person witness, verses 8 through 11. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet I, not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul said, I preach because of, why did Paul preach? I mean, Paul's got a huge testimony, and we hear a lot of Paul's testimony just because we have the practicality of the epistles. And, well, Paul preached because he understood who he was. I, I persecuted the church. And, and in that, what he's understanding is, is the magnitude of the grace of God. The grace of God that even though he was in the process, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he was breathing threats towards the church. And the idea is Paul absolutely hated the church. He wanted to destroy the church. But then God, by his grace, changed his heart and altered his path. And so he understood who he was. But also, what happened to him in Acts 22, 7 And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I saw, he could say, he did say, he is saying, I saw the resurrected Lord. He appeared to me, he spoke to me. And then the change in me, Paul could say, 
1 Timothy 1.16, I obtained mercy that in me first Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And the idea behind that is, if he saved me, he'll save you too. And we should all have that same attitude. And then Paul was well aware of who God has made him that day. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, all based upon what Jesus has done, continues to do after his death, all based upon his resurrection. Go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Thirdly, we see the results of the resurrection. This is the great commission as it appears in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Again, verses 15 through 18. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So you may say, well, Pastor Mike, when are we doing the serpent thing? I don't do snakes. If you want to do a serpent thing, you can show me in my office. And if you live, then when, when are we going to be doing the drinking the poison kind of a thing? Well, the idea is, is as you're going about making disciples, for instance, you're going to Rome to preach to Caesar, and you're on the island of Malta, and you reach down into a stick pile, as Paul did, and a serpent latches onto you, and the locals who understand what kind of serpent that is are waiting for you to die, and you don't. That What God is speaking of here is his protective grace as we're following through in his will. Now, I, I say it as a joke, obviously, but there are people who do serpent handlings and their life expectancy isn't very long because they're just putting on a show. It's not of the Lord and at the very best, God is protecting them every time he allows them to not be bit. Uh, God is protecting them even in the midst of their foolishness, but that's not what is being spoken of here. What is being spoken of as you go about what I have called you to do Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's there for the purpose of protection. Also, we need to back up to verse 16. It's important to understand what is being said here. Well, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, you could say, Pastor Mike, you said that baptism was not necessary for salvation, but we do it because of salvation. Well, it's not saying here that baptism is necessary for salvation. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. If baptism was necessary for salvation, it would say, he who does not believe and or is not baptized will not be saved. And so... A natural extension of our faith is to be baptized. That's why it's included there. But as far as to be condemned, if you don't believe, that will be the only thing that will condemn you. Another point, we've looked at it. It's not going to be on the board because I just added it. But in the New Testament, there are five versions of the Great Commission. Each of them has a different perspective. Matthew, I read it earlier, 28, 18 through 19. Jesus came and spoke to them all, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because of that, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The perspective there is the authority of Jesus Christ to give the order. And then in Luke 24, 46-47, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to, uh, in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The perspective there is the fi- fulfillment of prophecy. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That perspective is worldwide evangelism. And then in John 20, 21, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Perspective, our orders are reflective of the Lord's orders that he received from the Father and that we would exhibit sacrificial love and that we would die for the sake of others. And then Mark sixteen fifteen through 16, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And the perspective here is, is because of the final judgment, we go forth and make disciples. And then lastly, the continuation from the resurrection is verses 19 through 20. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. And again, the idea here is, is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The idea he sat down at the position of honor, but also the position of authority. Not only, now this is important because your Redeemer could live, but still be ineffective in your life or unable in your life. But not only does our Redeemer live, but he also sits in the throne room of God. And the idea behind that is he sits in the place of authority over all creation. It's once again how we can have the assurance that all things are working together. That lo, I am, that he is with us even to the end of the age for the purposes in which he has called us to. It's essential that you know that your Redeemer lives. It's essential that you know that your Redeemer sits in the place of absolute authority It's essential that you know that one day you will go to be where he is as well. And it's essential to know that all eternity is stretched out wide before everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us these truths. And these truths are just so valuable, Lord, in our Christian lives. And Father, I I would imagine if we did the survey, just about everybody in here would believe every single one. But I pray, Father, that we would digest these things into our lives, that they would become part of the fabric of our calling and part of the fabric of who we are. The greater the boldness we have will be based upon our reliance and our knowledge of these truths and, and the belief that we have in them. And so, Father, I pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would help our weaknesses, that you would strengthen us, and God, embolden us for the purposes to which you have called us. We thank you for this evening, Lord. I pray for those who have come out tonight, that you would bless them, go before them. I pray that we would travel safely and pray, Father, that we glorify you at every opportunity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?
Just a reminder of family night that's coming up on the 9th. Uh, we have a sign-up sheet. Um, if you could sign up, uh, we need uh, some stuff if you're able to bring some condiments or whatever's listed there. Or if you want to bring more chili for Pastor Mike, that would be a good thing as well. God bless you guys. I'll see you Sunday morning. Of your love will always be enough. 
God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.